Welcome to the ARPA Animal Shelter of the Week podcast, where we introduce you to incredible organizations around the country that are focused on helping animals. We're proud to be sponsored by Dubert.com. Dubert is a free website designed to connect volunteers with rescues and shelters, and the only site that automates rescue relay transport. Let's meet this week's featured animal shelter. Founded in 1971, the Arizona Animal Welfare League and SPCA, also known as AAWL, is Arizona's oldest and largest no-kill shelter. Their mission is to rescue, rehabilitate, and rehome companion animals throughout the state of Arizona, to help reduce shelter population by offering affordable veterinary care and dog training to the public, and also to educate the next generation of animal advocates while teaching compassion for all living things. AAWL's shelter facilities provide a temporary home for nearly 4,000 dogs and cats every year, offering medical and behavioral treatment for those in need, and at any given time, their shelter can hold 140 cats and 190 dogs. Hey, Michael and Dr. Matt, it's nice to have you on the show today. Thank you so much for having us. Thank you very much. Of course. I'm super excited. You guys are my, my first dual podcast recording, so I'm excited to see how this goes. Uh, I know we have a lot of things to talk about, so let's just go ahead and get started right away. And why don't you guys tell us a little bit about your organization, where you're located, uh, maybe what your mission is, um, and let's let's get started. So the Arizona Animal Welfare League and SPCA is Arizona's oldest and largest no-kill animal shelter. Uh, we've been around since 1971. We were founded by Miss Kitty of Gunsmoke, uh, who is Amanda Blake. Her and her friends got together and realized there was a serious lack of animal organizations that could help out in the valley in 1971. So they formed this group, and we've grown and grown and grown ever since. Uh, There's this running joke from the board members that they used to have meetings at her house down the road, and a tiger would walk through her living room in the middle of a board meeting. So things have changed. Uh, We don't have tigers anymore. Uh, (laughs) We work with dogs and cats. Um, But we also haven't left basically the same footprint of where the original shelter was in 1971. We've just expanded. So we're still at 40th Street in Washington in Phoenix, right next to the airport, uh, but have acquired a significantly larger property since then through grants and donations and so on. Um, We rescue about 4,000 animals a year. That's about half cats half dogs. We also have a youth education center with uh, outreach programs, anti-bullying campaigns, summer camp, spring camp, birthday parties, teen tracks, teen leadership programs. And we also have a a low-cost public clinic, which is really fantastic because it provides medical access at a lower cost to the public so we can try and keep those animals in their home. Because you're located in Phoenix, uh, I'm definitely curious on what the community is like there, being close to the airport. Can you tell us a little bit about what that community is like? Any particular challenges that you have, either for animals or people? Yeah, so about five, about six or seven years ago, Maricopa County, which is where Phoenix resides, and it's also one of the largest counties in the country, was ranked as uh, one of the worst counties for homeless pets. Uh, the euthanasia rates were out of control. Uh, resources uh, didn't exist for some people. It was very difficult. So all the groups came together in the Valley and formed the Alliance of Shelters. And then that was funded through a group called Fix It Up Save uh, through the Nina Mason Pulliam 
uh, trust, charitable trust, as well as PetSmart Charities. And in that time of working together and providing access and resources, we were able to lower the euthanasia rate by over 80% in the Valley. Uh, Dr. Matt works very, very closely with Fix It Up Save and helps uh, run a lot of their programs to make that difference. Wow, 80% huge. I don't know that I've I've ever heard that before. And how long did it take you guys to accomplish that? Um, I would say about five or six years to kind of get to the point where we're at right now. And I think one of the biggest things that I've been able to make an impact on in the community is doing what I like to call access to care. So a lot of people, you know, sometimes they feel like they have to give up their pet to the shelter because they can't afford uh, the veterinary care or the high cost of care for that animal. But we really, really go above and beyond that. We get grants for people like that. We bring them into our public clinic. We really try to provide that veterinary care because even though we're an animal shelter, at the end of the day, I would like to keep every pet in a home. Um, So by providing access to care, especially through our public clinic, has, I think, really helped to alleviate some of the stress on uh, our population here. I also think that doing a lot of the outreach stuff that we do, I do a monthly vaccine clinic here at our main shelter and through Fix It Up Save, we do a lot of free vaccine clinics around the valley uh, and also here at our home shelter. Back in October, we did a huge uh, free vaccine clinic at an event called Pity Palooza. Uh, we had a huge turnout. There was over 300 animals we vaccinated. And then again, this past month, we did another free vaccine clinic here at our shelter, and it was a very high turnout as well. So I really think that by providing you know this access to care for, for animals, we can better serve our community. And that I think that helps to drive down the euthanasia rate. I guess my question would be, how do you implement something like that? How did you go from knowing you had such a problem to where you are today? What, what kind of support did you need? What were the steps that you took over the, over the last five to six years to make that so successful? Uh, a lot of meetings and really great funders who believed in your mission. So we knew we had a problem. We all did. We've, we've worked together off and on as the large shelters for years. Uh, you know, we're a city of 5 million people. We're the fifth largest metropolis in the country. And we could see that with the expansion and the changes, we were just, some of us felt like we were losing a grip on the situation. And we just finally sat down and said, we have to make a difference. We have to work together who can we find as stakeholders to make this difference? And it's, you know, it's to this day, it's six years later, where the Fix It Up Save uh, initiative is still existing. The Alliance still exists. We meet once every month or once every other month, um, still work with each other on transfers and partnerships and vaccine clinics and spay and neuter clinics. And so it's definitely not one of those, oh, we had this magic bullet and all of our problems are solved and now we get to walk away. This is a continuing thing where, me and Dr. Matt and other others in the Alliance meet and talk about this and work with it. And all the CEOs sit in a room and work through issues. Um, but a large part of that was also that when you're trying to make that, that global change, that paradigm shift in your environment, you have to have the money to back it up. And we are very, very lucky to have uh, the stakeholders of PetSmart Charities and the Nina Mason Pulliam Charitable Trust who believed in us to be able to invest that money. So we're like, oh my God, we want to increase how many spay and neuters we do. Well, that's going to be a couple million dollars over the next couple of years. Oh, we have to do these free vaccine clinics. 
we wouldn't be able to offset that except for, you know, $10,000 to be able to provide that. And our stakeholders believed in us. And we had the evidence from years and years of other people's research saying, this is how you can make that long-term difference in your community. And that's just simply working together, communicating, don't build walls between each other, realize you're all in the same race, you know, uh, you know, we all have the same goal and then find funders that are able to understand that some, you know, that it's a marathon and not a sprint so that you can provide those benefits long-term to see that long-term large difference. The programs that Dr. Matt's running, that's that long-term thing. Next year, you're not going to notice a significant downturn because you vaccinated a couple months ago, or, you know, it's that long game that you have to realize you're playing and realizing you're going to be a part of a community that's going to be around for a long time. So you need to say, how do we make these long-term goals make the biggest difference? Yeah, I agree with that. There's definitely 100% truth to what you're to what you're saying. Now, if there's other communities, other organizations out there who are having the same problems that you guys had five to six years ago, how what would you tell them? I, I think you have to look at it from from many different angles. So I think one of the big ones is implementing a very successful spay neuter program. Uh, to really kind of decrease the pet population. Again, kind of providing that access to care for people. So you're decreasing, you know, the relinquishment of animals to shelters. Uh, and then I think working with other people in your community. So usually, unless it's a really, really small community, there's going to be multiple animal shelters. There's going to be multiple rescues. There's going to be multiple funders. And I think one thing that was really successful here in Phoenix is the fact that some of our big funders were like, hey, we're, we're going to provide funds for all of you guys to work together and really try to decrease that euthanasia rate. So I think it's it's not just one thing. And I think a long time ago, we all thought, especially on the veterinary side, is, hey, we can spay and neuter our way out of this, which you can, but that's just one component of, of many different issues that you face. So I think you have to realize kind of going into things that you really need to look at it from many different aspects if you want to be successful uh, in having a a great animal welfare community like we have here. Yeah, I think those are three really, really great points. Um, and I know partnerships is always a really big one for us. Um, but you're also working with your peers, right? Other shelters, which I, I think is so important. To one of the things that we've seen is some people talk to us and say, well, I can't do it. My community is this or my community is that. That's not going to work. We've spoken to a guy from Southern Australia who has had this feud with his partner shelter that's a hundred miles away in the middle of nowhere and they've argued for 10 years yeah. and we basically talked to him to see how he could try and implement a better community program and he's worked towards that so if this guy can pull this off literally anybody can by having those conversations having those meetings finding the right funders making sure that you really have a community focus, having good partners like Dr. Matt and all the vets on board to know what can make that big difference. It's possible for any community. Yeah, I, de I definitely agree. That's a pretty cool story uh, from a half a world away, right? So I love that you shared that. And, and again, we fully support the, the partnership idea. Uh, and we definitely encourage everybody to work together as we do have one problem um, that we're all trying to solve. So that's really, really important. I do want to kind of talk about other challenges that you guys might have. Um, you know, we talked about the, the pet overpopulation. 
Uh, is there any other challenges either within the organization or, you know, again, within the within the community that we maybe didn't touch on? Or is pet overpopulation the main focus for you guys, the main challenge? Um, pet overpopulation is really the main challenge. Uh, we're still working through it. We've made a significant difference here in the Maricopa County area, but we have seen the pet overpopulation problem across the state. So we created a rural rescue program where we now travel to 32 partners across the state to some of these small rural places that are either government mandated, but not exactly government funded, except on a very small scale. Um, they're in small populations where if you want a dog, you have a dog. Therefore, adoptable dogs aren't frequently adopted because it's kind of a it's an oversaturation situation um we've worked with different tribes across arizona uh to help them with their pet overpopulation problem and help them with those resources and it's been really cool we've done since we started this program in 2015 we've done 6,000 rural rescue uh animals uh up until today so that's that's a really awesome thing that that now that we were able to help our community and work in our community, we're now able to help other communities, give them that breathing space, give them that peace of mind that there are people out there that can help them that we finally took five to six years to get. But I'll tell you, the cases that Dr. Matt sees walk through his door now, I see that as some of the biggest challenges is, you know, five, six, seven years ago, the just the just add water, highly adoptable, easy dogs. Those were coming through the door. We had an overpopulation problem. But now what we're seeing is a lot more medical cases, a lot more behavior cases. Uh, and Dr. Matt deals with some some of the craziest cases I've ever seen, including cases that we've sent to a specialist orthopedic surgeon who has put us in studies because some of our animals are such a unique medical case. And Dr. Matt can talk about some of the cases, but it's vaccination issues we're starting to see heartworm that we weren't seeing before um and and just crazy situations i'm curious on why why that increase is happening why why do you think you're seeing more medical and behavioral uh, animals come into the clinic i think it's kind of what, what michael mentioned we've been so successful here in, in driving down the euthanasia rate that all the highly adoptable dogs you know we get them in and we get them out the door and it, it used to be that you could find you know, 100 highly adoptable dogs at the county shelter and, and bring them in, get them, you know, spayed, neutered, vaccinated and out the door. But now all those highly adoptable dogs with our, you know, efforts with spayed, neuter has actually decreased. So I think that's why we're seeing the tougher medical cases and the tougher behavior cases. I think kind of another thing to, to touch on in terms of our um, rural rescue program, people like to focus on the animals, which is definitely why we're here. But at the end of the day, too, if we can go out to these county shelters that are in the middle of nowhere, Arizona, that have a high euthanasia rate, and we've been able to help them kind of pull a lot of animals from them and, and get them adopted out, that means that that animal control officer has that fewer animals to euthanize. And there's several shelters that we work with, and one of them in particular I work very closely with, and it used to be that they had to euthanize every dog that came in, and now they don't have to euthanize anything. And he is super grateful that we come out there at least every other week to pull animals um, and has really, you know, decreased the amount of burnout that he's seen at his shelter in terms of his animal control officers, because 
they they're there for the animals and then they feel like they're able to help those animals when it used to be that they would have to euthanize those i actually took uh the dog that i have my light of my life uh addy she came from that shelter that dr matt's talking about and she was found in the desert she was very shy she had valley fever she was a puppy um and she is i've had her for two years and I was able to meet the man that runs that shelter and talk to him and thank him for bringing such an amazing animal to my life. Now, granted, like, you know, medical and behavioral case, uh, terribly shy, uh, you know, even two years after adopting her, I was her foster for a while, treating the valley fever, all of that. She's still such an important part of my life. And my other dog, Seven, he's wonderful. He's very easygoing. He came from the county shelter. I was able to sit and thank this man for everything that he did uh, to get Addie to me. I'm like crying at our big gala and he's just very emotional and he's so happy to see the difference. And it was, it was this realization of even more so of why we do this. And I always wanted to thank him and say, I know that we're helping and I'm glad we have this partnership, but I wanted him to see that direct personal connection of how his animals that a few years ago, he might've had to euthanize due to space are now pampered and spoiled with us and how it's affected my life. Yeah, that's a great story. I think for people involved in animal rescue to know that personal impact, right? It's it's one thing to know that you didn't have to euthanize the animal, but to see where they ended up and to see the growth and the impact they're having on their human, I think is is a really special connection. So that was great that you had the chance to to chat with him and, and thank him. Yeah, last year we we actually honored our rural rescue partners, but it's definitely not one of those situations where, you know, people have people have these weird perceptions sometimes of of executives or people in animal welfare that are not boots on the ground. I'm the marketing and communications director, but that doesn't mean I haven't hopped in a truck and driven 2 to 3 hours to a rural rescue partner and climbed under an abandoned trailer to rescue puppies. That doesn't mean that Dr. Matt hasn't driven 4 hours each way in the snow to make sure that he could take animals. Uh, that the the shelter might have been overpopulated with that didn't have an outlet. Uh, you know, he's our medical director. He has an MBA. He's been a vet for years. And he's like, yeah, let's get in this truck. Let's go save these animals. And I agree. That personal connection, it really reinforces why we do what we do. And I will always support and, and make sure that our rural rescue flourishes because of Addy, because of what I've seen and the partnerships we've built. And Dr. Matt is obviously one of the biggest champions for this program because he's built these relationships. He's built these partnerships by physically getting out there and working with them and staying up there, uh, you know, and 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 realizing what problems they're dealing with and provide a, a great supporting outlet for them. Uh, and that personal connection is always what's going to continue to drive our, uh, you know, our mission. Yeah, I love that. I think we all need something that keeps us driving forward, right? We all have tough days in in the animal welfare industry, and I think those those focus points are are key, right? To remember where we were, to remember where we're going. Uh, you know, you have to remember those when you're having tough days. So I think that's an incredible program uh, that you guys have. And Dr. Matt, congratulations with all the work you've done and building the partnerships across the state. So I know you guys were talking about programs. You guys have a ton of programs on your website. Uh, and I know we can't go through them all, but it would be great to talk about a few of them. 
Do you guys have any that you want to share that you're extremely proud about and, and maybe the extra work that it's taken to go into them to to make them successful? Yeah, uh, we, we're we always trying to innovate. We're always trying to make it easier for our animals to enjoy their time here. You know, we have a really great shelter and we're very blessed to have a really great shelter and we know that, but it's still a shelter. So we're always trying to create programs that help our animals and then also help our volunteers and staff and the people that visit enjoy their experience so that we can help break that stereotype of what a shelter is. So we've got, uh, we created a slumber party program where people can take dogs and cats home for a couple days that are potential adopters and see how the animal interacts with their life. It has a 70% success rate of people adopting those animals. We have a teen tracks program and summer camp that work with the youth that basically, (laughs) I always joke that their job is to make my job go away. So that in 10 years, I don't need to tell people about spay and neuter and vaccinations because they've been going to camp for the last couple of years, learning about animal welfare and animal husbandry that we don't have to worry about educating them because they've been doing it for years. And it teaches them leadership skills and confidence. Um, we have uh, a book. We have a book club. We partnered with a bookstore in the valley that gives us uh, a couple copies of one book and then the volunteers are allowed to sit in the kennels with the animals and the public is allowed to sit outside the kennel and read to the dogs. It's a super low impact, high value activity for our dogs and cats. And it costs barely anything. And it's such an easy, enriching activity. Um, we do Dogs Playing for Life, which is a national uh, play group uh, kind of consultant. And it allows us to get all of our dogs out into a play group with uh, rotating in and out with different dogs. So we can exercise our entire shelter in two hours with amazing physical and mental um, enrichment. Uh, it's it's just kind of one of those, what's next? That's always the question we want to ask. It's like, what can we do? You know, can we do, we do bark breaks, which are groups of puppies that we bring to businesses and they give us a donation so people can have a break in their office And then you're also making connections with local businesses showing off what you do. So besides the fact that they get to play with puppies, you know, when it comes end of year or it comes sponsorship season, you're like, you know, I we worked with that group and they brought us the puppies and we really liked them. So you're also educating the population at the same time of providing them a really cool thing like puppies. And Dr. Matt has a medical miracle fund and we're also one of the only large shelters in the valley that treats ringworm in cats yeah let me i want to touch on one program that that i run that i really feel is an important part of of our mission here and and one of our mission things here is to educate the next generation of animal welfare i kind of do that through having the veterinary students from midwestern university come and spend time here Uh, i usually have at least one student extern a week Um, and then my wife who's a shelter veterinarian for midwestern they come in probably about once a week as well with with six or seven students. And that really gives me the opportunity to talk to those students, expose them to shelter medicine. Um, you know, because when people think of veterinarians, they're like, oh, I'm going to go practice on dogs and cats. That's kind of the, you know, typical thought process. Just last week, I had a student who was here for the rotation and I was talking about our organization and what all we do. And at the end, she actually came up to me and she's like, you know, I, I never even considered going into shelter medicine. And, and now... Now it's something I want to consider, you know, tell me more about it. Can I come and spend more time at your shelter? Can I, you know, learn more about it? So that's, 
that's something that I'm really proud of is exposing those students to shelter medicine and, and trying to convince them um, to come work in shelters. In terms of other cool things that, like the, the uh, treating the ringworm, uh, we're actually in the process of designing and building a, a new uh, ringworm facility to treat uh, ringworm cats, ringworm kittens. Um, because it is a treatable disease, it just takes usually about six to eight weeks to treat, so it's fairly intensive. Um, but we're going to build a brand new structure to really try to treat as many as we can. And that's that's definitely a point of pride for me here. Uh, and then treating all the different medical cases, the Medical Miracle Fund has been amazing. I, I can't tell you how much the community loves to donate to that fund. Uh, and it really goes, every every dollar donated to that fund goes to, goes to help the animals. So it's another program that I absolutely uh, am very proud of. And being able to provide kind of that next level care to our population here is is very important. The strength for you guys, for me in listening to this and checking out your website, honestly, is your community connection. Um, they've rallied around you. I think you guys keep coming up with these new programs and innovative ways. And I love that you're reaching out to you know other organizations across the state. Um, there are many shelters and rescues you know that we talk to and that we come across that don't have that full support of their community. And, and I think you guys are a, a prime example of what that can do for an organization. Um, so I applaud you for the relationship um, that you're building, uh, the next level that you continue to go to. Um, I'm really excited to see uh, the progress. And, and uh, since the ringworm program is, is fairly new, it sounds like, uh, you know, how you guys get that started and where that goes for the community. Uh, really excited to, to kind of watch that grow. Um, you know, the other thing that, that I hear with other organizations is they do have vet programs, right, with students. Dr. Matt, can you share with us a little bit more about that? How does, how does one apply to participate in, in something like that? Yeah, so that's, um, you know, what a, a lot of people think of shelter medicine and vet schools, a lot of the big vet schools like UC Davis, Florida, Cornell, they have these established programs with shelters in the area, and it's a combination of, of veterinarians and vet students being able to mentor those those vet students. I think one of the, the biggest things here is it's a fairly new program out at Midwestern. Uh, the vet school just graduated their first set of students, and so this is the, I think, the fifth year that they will be open in terms of, in terms of veterinary class. Um, but in terms of getting those students exposed, not only do they come to, to our shelter, but they go to uh, a lot of the other shelters in the area. And that's a different program compared to the other big vet schools. I think sometimes there is a lot of hesitation uh, for shelters to take on vet students because they're like, oh, my gosh, these vet students are going to come in and, and they're going to cause you know issues. Or we're going to have to go back and fix them and it's going to be a big headache. So I think there's a lot of anxiety sometimes with shelters wanting to take on vet students. But I will tell you, one one of my main goals is to show other shelters that, hey, taking on vet students and, and showing vet students how to do surgery and how to do medical cases uh, can actually be really beneficial for your shelter uh, and actually help with your caseload. So that's one of the big goals that not only myself, but my wife and I have as well, is to really show uh, communities that if you pair with your vet school, it can really make an impact on what you can do with your population. Do you know how cool it is to have our vet students working alongside our intake team. So they're helping take weights, do vaccines, notice medical conditions that our intake team might not notice because they had just read about it in one of their classrooms. Uh, they've done uh, 
they've worked with our TNR program. Uh, they've helped, you know, just observe and understand what's going on. So you could have just somebody coming and helping that extra pair of hands. But uh, Dr. Matt's partnership that he's built with Midwestern with his wife, it's the ultimate, it's the ultimate multiplier effect when you want that ability to really make the difference and that extra specialty. And it's helping the students at the same time. Programs like that are just phenomenal. Uh, I think it encourages the community relationship and it also gets that next generation involved, um, which I think is huge. So great job to you guys for implementing programs like that. I want to wrap up the programs piece by asking what the future looks like for you guys. Do you have any plans, uh, any upcoming events that you want to talk about? We're always trying to figure out what the community needs. It's it's a balance between, well, let's create a program that we need. Now, the, the Slumber Party program was grown from that idea is, you know, we have a lot of animals here. We're, you know, a limited intake shelter. So if we have the ability to open up more kennels, increase adoptions, well, let's see. Well, the summer party also obviously is very helpful for the community because they're spending time with those animals and really recognizing what a close bond they can build or personality matches. And so those are longer lasting adoptions. It's, it's a balance between asking yourself what programs you need to make a difference in your organization but you also need to really think about what the community needs. The programs you're creating need to make an impact in that community. And so when we recognized that there wasn't a strong uh, summer camp program that focused on veterinary science, we really pushed hard to create a junior vet experience in our summer camp for teens. Uh, You know, when we recognized that a lot of volunteer opportunities, you have to be 18 and over, we created a junior volunteer day so they could spend time with our animals and help with the shelter. Um, You know, when we realized that the community, you know, five, six, seven years ago, when we saw that there was such a problem with uh, the ability to cover vaccines or the availability of those, uh, Fix It Up, Save was able to sponsor vaccine clinics, free vaccine clinics. So it's a balance between discovering what you want, but then also what the community needs. And so we always are touching base with our community and looking and seeing what they need. So it's hard for me to say what's next, but I will say whatever it is, it's what the community has told us they need. And I know you have a lot of information on your website as well. So is that something that you keep updated and people can check regularly for? Yeah, we update our website constantly. We have an events calendar. We have uh, we have a blog. We have all of our programs, our summer camps, all of that out there. Um, I obviously want to keep it even more updated, but it kind of falls on my shoulders. Uh, and so it's one of those, okay, how much more can I put out there? Uh, and then it always, you know, some of it falls by the wayside. As we all know, we get busy, but, you know, we always want to say, okay, how can we make sure that we can digitize our summer party uh, information so other shelters can borrow that? Or how do we, you know, present all of our information about our animals on the website so it makes it easier for people to make decisions before they come down here? So yeah, we, the website is such an important part. And I know a lot of people are like, oh, you know, we keep it here. It's like, really, as an organization, please make sure that you're keeping your website updated. You have a blog talking about new ideas. Your social media is, is constant and, and active because that's how you're going to be interacting with your community. That's how you're going to realize that things need to be implemented or changed. We're in that digital field now. That has to exist as an organization. Before it was, you know, three guys working at a house, helping rescue you know, these smaller organizations. And now if you don't have a digital presence, it's going to affect you negatively. 
uh, because you're not able to interact with the community. So yeah, making sure our website's always up to date, our social media is always up to date, talking about what we do, getting in front of the camera, doing media hits, uh, you know, trying to get it in front of local uh, TV and talking about that and spreading that message. Yeah, those are all really, really great reminders. Uh, and some organizations do a better job than others. I think what you guys are doing, and I checked out your website today, it's fantastic and you have a lot of information out there. So we would encourage people to go out and, and check it out and see how they can how they can help you guys today. Um, now, one of my favorite parts of this whole thing is hearing stories. Uh, it sounds like you guys have been doing this for quite some time and in relatively different areas. Uh, do you guys have any stories that stand out to you that you want to share? The thing that I love about working here is, even though we're a small organization, that actually I think that works to our advantage. So we can make changes as we go along, and I can kind of come up with things on the fly sometimes. But I, I think the... The thing that I enjoy the most out of everything is really is having the, the veterinary students here and really exposing them to shelter medicine and really trying to, to change their perspective of, of what shelter medicine is and what, what shelters can do. And I, I really enjoy teaching them. I, I really can't tell you enough when my wife is here with the students and we have the ability to teach them together, it's, it's the best part of my day. Um, and I, I love working with the animals and I love working with my staff. But I think the the thing that drives me the most is really being able to educate those next veterinarians coming out. So any anytime I get a chance to do that, it, it means a lot to me. Um, so I'm like a huge fanboy for all of our animals, and I just nerd out all the time and sit in their kennels with them. And uh, sometimes I'll just go in the kennel and do work, and I'll just like yell out to people as they walk by. I'm like, "Come and meet this dog. They're really cool." They're really fun. Come say hi. <laughs> um, so I have a lot of kind of those stories, but I would say one of my top stories that always reminds me of what I'm doing. Uh, we had a dog that came to us. Uh, it was a it was a scheduled appointment for a surrender, and he had uh, it was a skinny shepherd. He his face and head were covered in burns um, that had healed. His when he was a puppy, he had hot oil spilled on him. And it wasn't cared for, so he has scarring all over his face. Um, when his owner didn't want him anymore, he drove him out to a park that was near his house and dumped him. Uh, FYI, that park is the largest municipal park in the country. That's how kind wow. of barren and, and desolate this place was. Uh, he left his two dogs out in the desert, uh, Jude and another small dog. Uh, they then walked all the way back to their their uh, owner's house. Uh, one of the dogs didn't make it, and the owner wouldn't take him back. So Jude lived underneath the trailer of his former owner until a neighbor saw him and brought Jude in. Uh, I was downstairs. I don't do intakes as part of my job. And this is when I was in operations before I moved to marketing communications. And I went down to the lobby and we were worried that we didn't have a kennel. We didn't have space for him. And he walked up to me and he put his head against my chest. And I just said, we'll find a kennel. We'll make it work. Uh, two days later, he broke with distemper uh, that he contracted while he was, uh, uh, you know, roaming the desert. And he was treated for over a month for distemper. But he knew my voice and I could hear him running along the uh, fence whenever I was walking by because he could hear me. And then uh, after he's treated with his temper, a guy came in and adopted him. And we get updates. He is fat. 
now. Uh, he sleeps on couches <laughs> and he gets whatever he wants. And now he has a doggy friend that was also adopted from AAWL. So it's a very full circle story. I actually have his report card, his kennel card on my wall. And I keep it up there all the time. Uh, just to remind me of just one story that we get to do. And one story that we get to affect in one life. Realizing that we get to affect, you know, 4,000 animals a year. It's definitely heartbreaking, but I'm so glad to see you were able uh, to find him a forever home, and and uh, and he's he's thriving. So I think that's that's key. Um, I just love what what your organization is about, and I love the community ties. I think everything you guys are doing is just is is wonderful. Uh, I've really enjoyed hearing everything about the organization. Uh, is there anything else you guys want to share before we wrap things up? A lot of stats have come out and reports have come out that. 2018 uh, year end didn't do as well for a lot of organizations due to the tax changes uh, that were implemented. We saw a downturn in our general donations as well. We're very lucky that we had some very targeted uh, campaigns that did well that helped offset that. But we are primarily run by donations. So I just ask your listeners, donate maybe if you have the chance a little bit extra the beginning part of this year. To your local organizations that you support, they might have gotten hit harder than you realize, and they might not mention it because it's a point of pride or they're really trying to find a way to recover that and make it up. But uh, some of those smaller groups, that could mean how many lives they save, and that could mean how many programs they get to offer. So if you have the chance of offering just a little bit of extra donation this month to your local organization that you've supported in the past, I know they're really going to appreciate it. Because I almost guarantee they took a hit at the year end when they were really expecting a large amount of donations to help save lives for the rest of the year. I, I think my my biggest message to to others out there in the animal welfare community is definitely talk. If you're in an area that has a vet school, definitely make contact with that vet school and don't be. I understand that there's there's anxiety on taking on vet students, but I think it can really really help your shelter at the end of the day. I think it can really help uh, your caseload and things like that. So don't be afraid to, to talk to your local vet school and, and figure out if they have a shelter medicine program and how you can possibly pair with them to or partner with them uh, to make a difference in your community. Well, guys, I've definitely appreciated your time today. Uh, and uh, I hope our listeners find value in everything that you shared, since we definitely shared a lot. And we look forward to seeing what the future has in store for you. Thank you so much for having us. Thank you very much. Thanks for tuning in to today's podcast. If you're not already a member, join the ARPA to take advantage of all the resources we have to offer. And don't forget to sign up with dubert.com. It's free and helps automate the most difficult tasks in animal rescue.